So you are sitting in the coffee shop talking to your friend who happens to be an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He knows the Torah and the whole Old Testament, backwards and forwards, and he reads them fluently in the Hebrew. You start to tell him about Jesus and your belief that he's the Messiah of Israel. And he says that this simply is not possible. It is not possible for Jesus to be the Messiah. He cites to you a bunch of passages from the Old Testament about the kingdom that's to be ushered in when the Messiah comes. You see, he says to you, you see, the Messiah, when he comes, destroys our enemies. He exalts Israel. He liberates the world from war. He ushers in an era of universal peace. And it's quite apparent that Jesus of Nazareth didn't do that. So he cannot be the Messiah. You say, look, I think I need another cup of coffee. You go back and get a refill and use the time to think over a response. You sit back down and you say, well, you know, there are other passages about a suffering Messiah, about a crucified Messiah. There's this lowly servant of Isaiah who's not going to break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. And so what the Messiah does first and foremost is he atones for our sins, you say, and through that eventually comes the fruition of all the other passages. Of course, he's heard this before and he disputes your interpretation of those passages, but he's a charitable man. He realizes that Christians see these texts differently. He politely agrees to disagree. And like the vast majority of Jews in the world, he remains skeptical of the claim that Jesus of Nazareth could possibly be the promised Messiah from the Hebrew prophets. Now, if you translate that conversation into a first century coffee house in Palestine, you will have a good idea of the question behind today's text. That the Jews of that day, including the disciples, have their doubts about Jesus' claim that in his life and in his teaching, the kingdom, the promised kingdom has arrived. You remember, even the great John the Baptist, well into Jesus' ministry, has to ask from prison, are you the one we are expecting or should we look for someone else? This is astonishing, isn't it? And I think it's fair to say, John knew his Old Testament. But John knows that Jesus' ministry seems rather impotent. It's facing fierce opposition. It looks like we have an itinerant rabbi who's unable to garner the support even of Israel. Forget the nations. And to the powers that be, 
In Rome, he looks like a confused prophet sent to some defeated backwater people in the corner of the empire somewhere. I mean, the weakness of refusing even to confront the Roman overlords. And the sheer weakness, you know, the ineffectiveness of sowing and talking about this kingdom. Enough with all this kingdom of God has arrived stuff. Where's the victory and where's the promised international glory? We're suffering under the hands of these Romans. So we're not dealing here with a peripheral issue. It's an issue that has great psychological weight and moment for first century Jews. Jesus is quite clear, quite clear, that the central fact of his ministry is that he ushers in the kingdom of God. And he's also quite clear that this is a universal claim, a cosmic claim. We don't often, I think, feel the weight of this or get the stress on the kingdom because of our American individualism. If we were asked, what is the most important thing about Jesus? We would probably say that he died for our sins. And of course, that's crucial. But Jesus sees the atonement as a means to an end. And the end is to restore the whole creation. To bring the kingdom of God, the civilization of God, the culture of the Lord. His central message is not repent for the atonement is at hand. His central message is repent for the kingdom of God. The civilization of God is at hand. I like to substitute the word civilization here because I know our ears are dull to kingdom of God talk. Because it floats away up there somewhere when I say kingdom of God in your mind. So just change the term to civilization of God. Repent because the civilization of God is at hand. And so the atonement as glorious as it is, is the center of a story that's moving to an end. And that end is the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile and the healing of the nations and the liberation of creation, the summing up of all things, things visible, invisible, things in heaven, things on earth, in Christ. It's a cosmic vision and Jesus is fully aware of the utterly revolutionary nature of his claims. And more importantly for our purposes today, he's aware of the possible objections. I mean, the objections seem obvious, don't they? And so he gives us these two twin parables. He gives us these two twin parables. So let's look at the first parable, the, one, the parable of the mustard seed, which begins in verse 31. He put another parable before them. Yeah, in Mark's version of this, the, there's a little bit more elaborate introduction. There Jesus says, with what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable should I use for it? It's interesting, Mark makes it clear that Jesus is almost thinking out loud. He's thinking, how am I going to explain the nature of this kingdom and this apparently strange, unusual anomalous situation. He knows the kingdom is a many-faceted thing. The kingdom of God is like 
a lot of things. Some of them are the things that your Orthodox Jewish coffee friend cherishes. But these parables are designed to point out that the kingdom has dimensions that many first century Jews and contemporary Jews and contemporary Christians need to hear. And so he says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man planted or sowed in his field. Now, again, this is a jarring image in the first century context. You know, maybe you could say it's like an oak seed or a cedar seed or, or like a conquering army. But a mustard seed? He says in verse 32, it's the smallest of all the seeds. Mustard seed was proverbial, you know, proverbially an image of smallness among the Jews. When you wanted to talk about something small, you spoke of a mustard seed. Right? Jesus says, if you have faith, as a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. And so he is stressing, he's stressing the tininess, the weakness, the apparent insignificance of the beginning of the kingdom in his ministry. It's not like he won't own up to the fact. He lays stress on it. He owns the point that your Jewish friend is trying to make. I mean, think of the impotence, the ineffectiveness from every human vantage point of what we do here. I mean, there are no public policies changed. Right? There are no powers who seem to care. There's no way of drawing some sort of a line from the church's worship and work to some broader social, political transformation. We're sowing. It's the kingdom is the smallest of seeds. It seems utterly insignificant. But the text says when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Mustard seeds produce shrubs. They can sometimes grow to 6 to 10 feet. And so you can have a small tree. But botany is really not the point here. The point is that this tiny, tiny, ineffectual seed does produce extended, extensive growth. And there's a connection, Jesus wants you to see, between the tiny beginning, the weak beginning, and the wonderful growth. And as it comes to maturity, the Lord goes on and says the birds of the air come and they perch or they make their nests in its branches. Now, this is a rich uh, image, an image that your friend in the coffee house would understand comes from the prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, kingdoms are often likened to trees. In Ezekiel 17, Israel is planted, the prophet says, grows into a tree and then the birds come Unrest under its shade, and the birds almost certainly there represent Gentile nations. So, this is a powerful image rooted in the prophets. And the point is clear the kingdom is starting small, but its growth will be great. So great that the nations currently at war, alienated, 
and unreconciled will be drawn into its orbit. So the second parable, the parable of the leaven, it makes much the same point. Only here, the emphasis is not on external growth. It's on internal transformation. The first parable is about external growth. The second is on internal transforming power of the kingdom. So the text is in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took. The first parable has a man as the sower. The second parable, a woman as the baker. You know, both of these parables, the man and the woman in them, have been given rather, um, shall we say, creative allegorical interpretations of the his, in the history of the church. The man who sows the mustard seed has been seen as Christ. And the progress of the seed has been seen as the progress of Christ's life. The woman has been seen as Mary or perhaps the church. But neither the man or the woman are the point of the parables. The point in both parables is the process. The point in both parables is the process that takes place by sowing seed or baking bread. So the woman takes leaven. You know, it's interesting. Leaven is often used in the Bible negatively, right? Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5 as a type of evil. The Israel, Israelites had to eliminate leaven from their houses before the Passover. But here it's clearly being used positively. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So we need to let the context of Scripture determine what the image means. It's a very important principle of interpretation, isn't it? The fact that Satan can be called a lion does not mean that in another context, Jesus can't be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so here the woman takes the leaven, which is a good thing here, and she hides it in a large amount of flour. Some translations say three measures, something like 150 pounds. It's a, it's a great amount of flour. And so Jesus' kingdom is not only tiny, 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 it's also hidden. It's tiny and it's hidden, like the treasure that we looked at last week. It's buried. This is important to grasp if we're not to become discouraged in our work. Right? The kingdom of God is small by human standards. It's ineffectual. It doesn't have any power players, any lobbyists, any resources on its side. And not only is it small, it's hidden. Just as you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This hiddenness is a permanent feature of what it means to be in Christ. When he is revealed in glory, then you who are now hidden shall be revealed. So the kingdom's not only tiny, it's hidden. And she hides the relatively small amount of leaven in a large batch until all of it is leavened. So this is the note of transformation. This kingdom, this kingdom, small and hidden as it is, permeates the whole batch and transforms it. This kingdom will permeate all of life. It will grow into a tree and the nations will come and rest under its shade. It will permeate the dough of civilization. 
Jesus says, don't be discouraged. Right? The point of these parables is really simple. It's clear. The kingdom has come. Yes, Jesus says, it has come in a weak way. It has come in a hidden way. But it is destined for dominion and ultimate transformation of the world. Yet there is a caution. There's a caution that needs to be entered right here. You can overread these parables and think that Jesus is teaching some kind of gradual, incremental, evolutionary removal of evil from the world. But remember, two weeks ago, we had the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that should give us pause. Right? These texts do teach that the kingdom will gradually advance. But it's clear that it's not going to advance in a straight line. These texts do not teach that things will simply get better and better. They just teach that eventually, in some fashion, under God's providence, the kingdom will conquer the nations. And the kingdom will permeate all of life. But we must remember that evil and good will grow side by side till the end of the age as well. You know, impartial fulfillment. If you step back from this parable, think of this parable. Here's Jesus of Nazareth right in Palestine telling this story to, you know, the disciples, maybe a few hangers on. He tells the story. Well, what can we say about it? 2,000 years later. Well, I mean, we can't prove it like we could prove a geometric theorem or something like that. But we have, in fact, seen this type of process in the history of the church. That confused, questioning band of disciples would turn the world upside down and the gospel of this kingdom would topple the Roman Empire. That's what would happen in the next 300 years. That's pretty close to an empirical verification of the parable, I'd say. They did not eliminate all evil from the world, but the plant of the kingdom has grown large. And the leaven of this gospel has worked to transform. Right? There is no Europe, no Western civilization apart from this gospel. This is not to say that all the nations are Christian nations in any simplistic sense, but it is to say that this gospel has leavened and transformed civilization and drawn nations into its orbit and impacted their lives in a profound way. I've mentioned before, Christianity in China uh, had one million adherents in 1900. One million. And today in spite of all these horrific conditions for growth over the past century, there are about 100 million Christians in China. And we know that this leaven, this little mustard seed, is growing explosively in sub-Saharan Africa. It's growing in Latin America. So the kingdom has come. And in the interval, it's doing its silent, unheralded, weak work. But we can look back and see the leavening process. We can see the growth of the tree. We can see birds in its shade. And we can be assured of its final triumph. Right? Both Isaiah and Habakkuk say, 
the earth will, the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But for that to happen, Jesus has to die. He has to suffer as a grain of wheat sown. He has to be sown into the earth so that he might draw all men to himself. This then is Jesus' answer to your Orthodox Jewish friend. It's not his complete answer, but it is an answer which goes a long way toward integrating, toward holding together all the Old Testament texts on the Messiah. Texts on suffering and humiliation, texts on glory and dominion. So there's a couple things I want to close with by way of application. One thing Jesus is doing here is he's laying down a staunch challenge to merely human perception. Things are not, beloved, they are not what they appear. They are not what they appear. The center of power in the universe is, in fact, right here in the prayers and petitions and worship of the saints. We see that in the book of Revelation. The prayers ascend as incense, and from the throne of God, he throws down judgments into the earth in response to the prayers and petitions of the people. Part of what Jesus is saying is you need to see the world. You need to have your imagination reordered to think this way and not be discouraged by the tininess or the weakness or the impotence or the apparent ineffectualness of what's going on. This is what the whole book of Revelation is about. The whole book is designed to get suffering little ragtag groups of churches smaller than this in, in Western Asia Minor on the rim of the empire who are beginning to suffer uh, persecution and harassment from the Roman emperor right, and his, and his underlings. It's, it's to get those churches to see that what is actually happening is that the Roman beast is digging its own grave. Right? and that its demise is about to happen, and that the prosperity of the martyrs is assured. The whole book of Revelation is, is a way of saying to the church, things are not what they look like. They are not what they appear in Iraq and Syria. Because those martyrs are around the throne of God. Right? And their weakness, and their ineffectualness, and their slaughter at the hands of these fanatics is such that now God throws down judgment in the earth in response to their cries. What they are doing now is they are saying, how long, O Lord? So there's a kind of seeing that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to embrace. The weakness of God is stronger than the might of men, in Paul's terms. That's the point. The weakness of, of speaking words and sowing words. And so these texts are also a call to patient endurance. You know, farmers and bakers, you know, they learn to be patient. I would guess, I've done no study, but I would guess there are not a lot of farmers on cholesterol medication. You know, there's a certain rhythm to it. There's just a certain kind of patience. Right? They, 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 these are professions that Jesus picks that the result is out of your hands. You sow, 
you hide leaven, and then growth happens wonderfully, almost miraculously, without your aid. You can't control the outcome. You can just sow and leaven. But you can't produce any growth. So why worry about it? Be patient. Be patient. And that means that you are called to sow, to hide the leaven of the kingdom in whatever situation you find yourself in. And you have to trust that God will magnify or he will leaven your leavening. Even our small works of service beyond all proportion. I mean, that is what has happened here. One itinerant rabbi preaching to this disjointed band has produced this civilization. And so, you know, beyond all human calculation, keep doing the little things. Because God will make them effectual. Acts of kindness and encouragement, teaching your children, being faithful, doing what you do in your job, cleaning, cooking, serving, evangelical witness, deeds of mercy. You labor in the dawn of everlasting results. You're doing what Jesus did and you're partaking in the work of this kingdom. So do so with the sure hope and confidence that it will come forth in all of its glory and splendor. Amen.